Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Write or Die show. I am your host, Randy Lee Boslaw. On today's episode, I'm going to be talking to Amy Carpenter. Welcome, Amy. So excited to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So first, just tell us a little bit about who Amy is. Sure. So uh, I am an author and an educator, and I actually uh, have also been in psychotherapy practice for about 25 years. So the author and educator piece has come about as of 2019. Um, and I've got two books that uh, recently launched, and so I'm trying to bring them into the world and bring some awareness to my work around sexual safety for teenagers. Excellent. No, so that's what you do, but who are you? Oh, I love the deep dive. Who am I? Well, I live in Maine, and that says a lot about me because living in Maine is its own particular experience. Uh, it's very, right now, very cold here. There is snow on the ground. We are definitely going to reach single digits soon, but I'm surrounded by trees. And so one thing about me is that I love trees um, and I get to walk in the trees during my break times. And I love that. So being kind of a nature lover and a hiker and, uh, you know, swimmer and different things like that are definitely a part of my, my essential being, if you will. Okay. I totally agree. I love nature. Um, I don't really have too many trees around me, but we have a, the canal. So it is a nice little walk around with the water there um, when there isn't snow. Cause yeah, we totally have snow too. Yeah. yeah. What state are you, Randy? I'm actually in Canada, so I am by Niagara Falls. Oh, lovely. Yeah, we oh. took a camping trip. We have a motorhome. We took a camping trip there a few years back, nice. and they've really built up that town there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty big there. So I live about 20 minutes from there. Oh, nice. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, so now that we know a little bit more about you, now we'll switch gears and kind of just talk about mental health. And so wherever you think that your story starts, because I don't know, sometimes stories start in the middle when it comes to mental health, you just take us through it. Um, well, I, I definitely think for me, my story started not in the middle, but, but kind of in childhood. Um, and of course I didn't know I was gonna be a mental health clinician, but I, I knew that I cared about people. I knew that I was curious about people, which I actually think is an essential part of my work as a therapist and you know, other people who, who work in that realm is to be curious about the human condition and the stories that people bring into uh, you know, the therapy process is really fascinating and it's a privilege to learn them. So I've always maintained that kind of curiosity and desire to explore you know, some of the deeper realms of being human that are good, bad, and ugly and take us in some wild places. Okay. And yeah. so what has led you to the sexual abuse for teens? Um, so there's a couple different components. I am a, an assault survivor myself. I experienced an assault when I was eight years old. Um, and this, this story is in my book. I'm very open about it. I've done a ton of healing around it. Um, and it kind of indirectly, even though it wasn't a conscious choice, that experience indirectly led me to working with victims of trauma and survivors of trauma. So 
through the, again, 20 years of, of working with folks in therapy, I saw a lot of women. And of course, that means I saw a lot of survivors. So I, um, I had been doing, you know, work in trying to assist these women in claiming their stories, because as you know, assault is something that often gets buried and isn't talked about and isn't shared. And so therefore it's hard to heal. And because we live in a culture where um, victim blaming is so prevalent, it's, wow. it's hard, it's hard to report and it's hard to share. So, so really for a lot of my clients, sharing their story in therapy was sometimes the first time they had ever shared it at all. Uh, so, so it was really apparent to me that this is a cultural issue we haven't done enough about, right? We all, we yeah. all know that. But I, um, I had been responding to assault for so long that in 2019, when my own daughter was assaulted while volunteering at a church soup kitchen, um, I started to see the picture differently. And I realized that I had been doing so much work in response and that felt beautiful and effective and important, but that I also had something to share around prevention. Yeah. And, um, and that, it, you know, that experience, which was very emotional and devastating for me. Um, and my daughter, by the way, has given me full permission to share this story. Her, her story is in the book. She's also given permission for that. She really wants young people to learn from it, but yeah. Um, I, you know, I just began to see like, we need to equip our young people with more tools. Yeah. We need, to, we need to have more conversations like in middle school around how to be safe, how to think in a safety-minded way, how to be out with your friends and, and have an evening that you can be able to have fun, but still avoid danger. Um, and there's a way mm -hmm. to do that. So anyway, that, you know, it really felt as though once I started to look at that, desire in me um, to bring some of that, my, my own experience and my own wisdom as a therapist to the realm of sexual assault prevention, it, it kind of started to flow. This yeah. curriculum, the curriculum that I teach, the curriculum that is in both books, just like flowed through. And um, it's, it's quite exquisite. I believe it's really an important uh, series of classes that help young people understand who they are in yes. the world yeah 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 okay so let's dig in a little bit so eight years old that's so young so tragic um I mean any assault is tragic but I just think when children are involved it's heartbreaking um mm -hmm. can you share with us a little bit about that story and how it affected you like I know you said it, it kind of led you to wanting to go into psychology, but at eight years old, how were you processing that? Right, well, at eight years old, I didn't process it at all. Um, I'm, I'm happy to share the story. And actually it did not lead me to, to wanting to be a psychotherapist. It, what's interesting to me is I ended up working in trauma, not intentionally. Okay. It yeah, it actually wasn't until, and I'm glad you asked about that. It wasn't until my daughter was assaulted that I realized Maybe that maybe I'm here for a, a larger reason than just okay. responding to this issue with my clients. So anyway, but um, no, at eight years old, I had no clue. I was innocent, naive. I was very much the the good, sweet girl, and um, I, you know, I, I never would have thought that something like that would have happened. Uh, yeah. But basically, my the assault that I experienced was 
from other children. So it makes a huge difference when you're talking yeah. about an assault by an adult on a child versus an assault by children on a child. These were boys that lived in my neighborhood. Most of them were older than me. There was a group of about eight of them. It felt like 20 of them when I was eight years old, but there was about eight of them. And what happened was my parents were out. You know, I lived at a time when children were not heavily supervised like they are now. Yeah. Um, I was by my, I, my siblings were like, we had a big property. So my siblings were playing somewhere and I was by myself playing in the yard. And these boys came onto the property and attacked me and held me down on the ground and basically took my, I think I had a little dress on. They took my underpants off and started taunting me. Um, and this went on as I'm screaming at the top of my lungs, but we lived on a dead end street. Mm. So nobody heard me. And I kind of knew as I was lying there that nobody would hear me, but I screamed and screamed. And finally this went on for a while and uh, they were taunting another little boy to take down his pants, which he did and taunted him to stick it in her, which he did not. Thank God he was a oh, child. God, so God. He was, he was, you know, prepubescent. Mm -hmm. um, but again, that went on for a, a while. And then somebody said, it's not worth it. Let's just let her go. And they did, thank God. And I ran into the house um, and I, I never told anybody. <gasps> so I never talked to my parents when they came home. I never told my friends. I never talked to my siblings about it. Um, it wasn't until I was in my twenties that I went to a therapist for some unrelated issue. I can't even remember what. And that story got shared. And of course, my therapist at the time said, well, that's probably a pretty significant impact on your life. Yeah. We yeah. talk about that. So anyway, and the rest is history. But yeah, it was it was quite interesting how, um, you know, and how many times I've heard this kind of story with my clients or something that, you know, really bad, like it's really bad what just happened. Yeah. I can't talk about it. You know, this kind of secrecy. And I'm sure it was my own version of shame that, you know, I didn't understand how to put myself as the good girl together with this experience. Yeah. So. And that's actually what a lot of the guests on this show have said when we are talking about sexual assault. Um, I've had a few guests on and that's what they say is I didn't talk to people because I was ashamed. Right. As if they asked for, it, which is not true in the slightest, but that is a big part of the trauma that goes along with it is the shame that for somehow, some reason you signified that it was okay what they did to you. Right. And that is not the case at all. And it's a very significant um, point that it is done to you. You are not a willing participant in this event right? because that we've got to get over that shame piece before true healing, I think can really happen. And before people can start speaking up about it, because we shouldn't be ashamed. It's just like, if your house is robbed, you call yeah. the police, you tell them if you're in an accident, a carmobile accident, you call the police, you tell somebody, right. But there's this giant stigma around sexual assault where the shame lies on the victim. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. And, um, and it's, it's really difficult. And in ha again, having had so many 
stories that I've heard and talked through with my clients, I don't think that we can necessarily get over the shame. It's more about putting it in that larger container of our culture and how victim blaming exists in our culture. And, you know, when you have an assault happen and you go ask, you know, you go to report it as we hope people will do. And then you have a police officer say, well, how much did you have to drink? And were you flirting? It's like, there's a reason why victims of assault experience so much shame. Yeah. Oh, totally. And that goes along. um, I'll have to look up her name, but I had a guest and she she was all about sexual assaults talking about that. And her book is called Unreported. And it is all about that specific concept of people are re-victimized. So there are so many sexual assaults that go unreported. And so how do we how do we as a society kind of help in that situation when we don't even know what's happening? Yeah. 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 And some alternative models, which I, you know, it's unfortunate that they're alternative because I think they, they could really help us if they were foundational, but like the restorative justice model, which would be hard with sexual assault, but not impossible um, where you have discussions and accountability right? Um, We don't have most often, I think one of the stats and it's in my book is uh, five out of a thousand reported cases under will do jail time. Five out of a thousand. So victims know like, okay, not only am I going to be questioned by the police, but it may not end up doing anything. It's Um, So now you're reliving all this trauma for no actual outcome. Now we still want people to report. And of course, if there is a report, then there's also, you know, the name on file. So hopefully another person won't be hurt by that person. Exactly. But it is so hard. And so, yeah, I do think we need to try and create new models. Um, Because I work with teenagers, I see so many school systems that just don't know how to deal with the aftermath of an assault when both the offender and the victim goes to the same school. How do you pretend, how do you protect the needs of the victim who, who doesn't want to go to class, understandably, yes. with the offender, but the offender hasn't been proved guilty. So it's just such a tricky business. Yeah. Um, and that is where, and I, I think particularly in school systems where because of our public education laws, it's, it's not going to be feasible to just say, okay, you don't come back to school. Yeah. Um, That is where the restorative justice model could be really amazing Mm -hmm. because it offers an accountability. And to me, I have a fantasy that the model would be carried out by a jury of your peers. Uh, So uh, because most teens end up spreading the word, right? So the entire school community may know about this mm -hmm. particular incident taking place. And again, what happens a lot with teens and their fear and confusion of the aftermath is it's a he said, she said, it's yeah. an allegiance with one or the other. There could be massive victim blaming and shame for the victim. There could be massive shame for the offender, but nobody's learning anything. Yeah. It's the action. So, you know, I, I, I love the idea of a jury of your peers where you have your classmates. Everybody already knows what happened. Yeah. Classmates, classmates sitting down with the offender and asking the offender, can you explain your actions? 
And what are you know what what led you to take these steps? And what what is your sense of accountability in having hurt another person? So yeah. you know, I just think that there's a lot of room for more of that. But we um, we're a ways off, unfortunately. Yeah. 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 It's the same with us here in Canada. We're, we're ways off there too. And I love how you're talking about accountability because especially when we're talking about children or teens and we assume that by the time they're teenagers, they know better, but how do we actually know that they know better? Because we don't actually know what kind of home environment they have, what they're seeing in the media. And in the school system, they really don't talk about it, at least with us, right? So it's it's a topic that the school is expecting the parents to discuss and, and teach. But if the parents aren't doing that, or the parents are expecting the school to do it, then how is this child supposed to learn it? It's yeah. not it's not something that is um, an inherent knowledge that this right. is, especially if they're in a home situation where one of the parents is abusing the other parent or right. the parent is abusing them, right? right? How does a child know at that point when that is their lived experience? So yeah. I love that you're talking about accountability because we need to be teaching them um, that the actions were wrong. And you're right. We need to be proactive, not reactive to that situation. Right. Um, so right. that's going to lead me into the, the next question. What Share a little bit, because your daughter gave you permission, about what happened and then your reaction as a parent, and more specifically, as a parent who had went through their own situation. Yeah. Um, so it's there's a lot of different pieces. So she um, was volunteering at a church soup kitchen uh, with a lot of other people, and the variables of her story really matter as far as prevention education. But anyway, um, her students were there, there was a supervising priest, there were other attendees, um, people who worked in the church, 50 people at least were in this room. And um, what happened was the offender began to groom her. He was uh, in his 60s, he um, came across as very friendly, very nice, and um, they, a lot of layers to it. They had been told by the priest that they should, all the high school students should mingle with the guests. And it was their job to mingle with the guests. So my daughter, again, being a good girl, doing what she was told. And how old was she? She was 17. Okay. She was 17, began to mingle with this guest. And of course he was grooming her, but she didn't know that at first. And long story short, he ended up finding a way to lure her into a hallway where the, he then touched her inappropriately and kissed her on the mouth. So she came back. He told her not to tell anybody. She came back to the group and told her friends, who then told the teachers. And then the teachers called the police and myself. Um, so she recognizes, as do I, that it could have gone a lot worse. And when you hear the kind of stories that I hear in my practice, it, we can actually say that was a mild assault. Um, but as a mother, it did not feel that way. It felt horrible. And uh, I was guilty and I felt um, confused and just so sad. And, you know, uh, the, the, the sense that I had, which I've worked through since then, 
and I don't think at all is true, is that somehow her innocence was compromised. And I don't mean innocence that, you know, she was 17. She wasn't, you know, innocent as far as the sex experience necessarily or what have you, but she was still a young person. 17 is young as far as the ways of the world. She was yeah, still, still seeing home. people as all good. Yeah, like, she kind was of still innocent. seeing people as all good. And so in that sense, it was like, just so heartbreaking to, you know, again, as a mother, feel as though that had gotten shattered. I since see it differently, um, but it was a real difficult first couple of weeks. And, um, you know, and I realized in the course of that time that here I am a, a clinician working with trauma who is fully aware of grooming. And I think my daughter was too, but, not to the level that she needed to be aware of it. Yeah. And so, I, I would... just to make sure that um, everybody who is listening and uh, watching know what is grooming? Because oh, I mean, it, it is a term that yeah. Yeah. should become commonplace, but it's not yet. Yeah, and it should become commonplace, um, I think in middle school, like as young as like 10 years old. Um, so grooming is the behavior on the part of usually an adult toward a child um, where there is manipulation in the form of very friendly um, conversation, uh, gentle approach, um, a feigned interest in that young person's life, all for the purpose of um, a sexual agenda. So it's grooming is coming across as a friendly, nice person when really you have an ulterior motive that is insidious. So um, it's, it's one of the things I want to go back to something that you said earlier that we don't have conversations and you actually almost exactly quoted a line in one of my books, the schools are expecting the parents to have these conversations, the parents are expecting the schools to. In the States, I don't know about Canada, but in the States, only 10 of our states in, in the US teach sex education that's medically accurate. That's 100% medically accurate. We usually do a very cursory sexual education process in schools and at home, again, because as you pointed out, we don't wanna make our kids uncomfortable. We ourselves are uncomfortable. So we don't tend to have the kind of conversations that young people need us to have. Yeah. Meanwhile, such as you know, avoiding grooming. But meanwhile, as you pointed out, they're seeing all this information on their screens every day. So they're having to navigate sexually provocative material without really a place to process it. And yeah. you know, and that's that's why this book and this program felt so important because we really go through, we take a, a give really a roadmap for navigating all these cultural forces, but also helping teenagers understand like who they are as an individual in the midst mm -hmm. of it all. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So uh, there's just so much there, right? Like, there's <laughs> there just so much because so much, you're talking about 50 people in a room and this person was able to, to groom her and try to get away with something that he he knew he shouldn't have because if he didn't know that he wouldn't have lured her into an area with others with, with nobody else there 
right? Yeah, yeah. And the police officer said, this is not his first time, you know? So it was really, it was really good that she made the report and she got to yes. see herself take right action and all of that. Yeah. But, you know, again, there were 50 people there. Why didn't anybody step in? And that's another thing we talk about in the course is like, if you see one of your friends be uncomfortable in a situation, go check in with them. Yeah. Right. Which Every, is so important. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times though, these, these people are often so good at what they do in regards to grooming that other people might not even notice it either. Right. Because if it's just a person being nice, right. Like you said, 50 people there, we're all just mingling. We're all just talking. Um, how do you, how do you decipher that this person's intent? are not just to be a nice person. Right? It's not yeah. an easy thing to do by any right. stretch of the imagination, but I like what you said, check in with people, um, especially if you see somebody who is much older talking to your friend who is you know, 17 or you know, even, even if they're 25 and, and a six-year-old person is talking to them, that's still a little bit strange. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that every time an older person taught, like when I go for a walk, I always wave to the neighbors and, you know, the, the crossing guard every day. I, I look forward to saying, oh, have a nice day and you too. And right. Yeah. Like, so it's not to say that we have to be worried that every person is going to be like that, but it's just being conscious to give it, give a quick question. Hey, you feel all right. You feel comfortable, right? Like, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. it can be hard to notice but a simple thing of how do you feel can go a long way yeah, yeah and I think for teenagers also being able to give permission to say no and to leave a situation it's remarkable and this is across the board not just young women I hear young men say the same thing well I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to be mean I didn't want to be rude yes and, yes, know, yes 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 yeah we teach our children to be good girls and boys right and that's that's a part of parenting and a part of our of our world but there are times when it's not okay to be nice yeah. and when it's actually essential to be very clear and direct with your boundaries and so teaching you know being able to give uh teenagers the tools I call it a script yeah. like what would you say if somebody were threatening your boundaries practice it because yeah. in the moment you're going to be caught by that feeling like oh I'm not I can't say it but mm -hmm. if you practice it, it becomes more normal than you probably will and that starts right at an early, early age, I'm going to say. So, and, and this has been going, uh, I've seen a few posts about this the last couple of years, actually on, on Facebook. And I think it needs to become more commonplace because that goes right back to when kids are little and they are being forced to give everybody a hug when they come over or saying goodbye to them. Everybody, you have to go and say goodbye, hugs and kisses. Yeah. And I mean, I love when my grandson comes over and gives me hugs and kisses, yeah. but I'm not going to force him to. I'll say, give grandma a hug and yeah. he'll run over and give grandma a hug. Yeah. But if he didn't run over to do that, that's fine too. Right? Right. And that as kids are getting older and with my kid, uh, he's 15 now, but there were times when he didn't, he doesn't want to. And so yeah. why are we forcing him to at six, seven years old, just because he's a kid? If he's uncomfortable in that situation, why force them? We're not going to force an adult to do it. Right, right. So that's, you know, we're grooming yeah. them right at that age to yeah. be nice to adults. Right, right. 
And yes, I've seen posts like that too. I feel like there is, it's almost like a little, a, a baby movement yes. um, happening where kids, you know, parents are really talking about like, ask your kids permission before you go give a hug, you know, don't assume that that's what they're supposed to do. Or, you know, most kids want to hug their parents, but certainly if a friend comes over or another relative, like they don't yeah. have to necessarily hug if they're not comfortable. And some people at a very young age just aren't physically oriented like touching doesn't feel good to some kids and that was my kid so my kid has my kid has autism and so he didn't doesn't like to be hugged yeah and never really has like I get I've always gotten hugs because I'm mom and we've got a special you know bond but for the most part he doesn't like to hug too many people and that's okay but other people need to realize that that's okay right Right. It's almost like we have to train the adults in order to help our kids. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, I agree. So, and I'm so glad that your daughter reported that because again, even if they aren't convicted, the name is there. And like you said, the police said this isn't their first time, which means they have a record now. And as you know, hopefully it never gets to the point that anybody is seriously harmed. Um, but now they have like a history to go by. If right. there was an investigation that needed to go more in depth, there's, there's this history there. And that's part of reporting it is getting their name. And you said it before, getting their name on, on that list so that there is a history that if something, I wish it wouldn't, but if something bad, much worse was to happen, it's there. Yeah, it is, you know, it's difficult because, you know, of course there are young people who will have no problem reporting and there will be young people who will have a great deal of difficulty reporting. And so it's, it's really up to each person. Um, But I would argue that the onus is on our systems, like our legal system to make it an easier pathway. Uh, And there are people doing some really cool stuff. So um, Dr. Ruth Campbell is a, a neurobiologist, I think, um, and she is doing a lot of work around trauma and responding to trauma in a mindful way. So she's working with police departments around giving victims time between the assault and reporting the assault where they can, you know, get back to their center. Because yeah. trauma, can, tra- trauma can do a lot of things to the brain and we don't always function at our optimal when we are living through trauma. It's kind of the opposite. So mm-hmm. anyway, she's just doing wonderful work educating um, you know, police departments and legal communities around, you, know, you give your officer two days off when he witnesses a murder. Yeah. There are people that you're asking to come and report a crime have just been assaulted so questioning them about what they drank or questioning them about, you know, their behavior is the opposite of effectively responding to that crime. So, but we just have a ways to go. So yes, it's going to yeah. require some patience for yes, sure. Yes, it definitely does. Um, all right. So tell us about this program. You keep saying program. So yeah, yeah. so the, it's, yeah, it's five classes. And we, um, that both five classes are outlined in the books. I've got book one is for young people, Be Strong, Be Wise, The Young Adult's Guide to Sexual Assault Awareness and Safety. That's book one. And then book two is Be Strong, Be Wise, 
five easy steps for discussing sexual ethics with teens. So as you can hear, book one is for teenagers, book two is for caring adults like teachers, parents, and counselors. Um, but they both follow this uh, five-step curriculum as far as bringing it to young people. Um, and basically, we start with a really broad lens in class one where we look at the definition of sexual assault, and which most young people don't know, by the way. Um, they don't know the legal definition of assault, so most people still equate it with rape. Um, that's changing, it's shifting rapidly, but it's still often the case. Um, and then and we look at the Me Too movement and we begin to just narrow the scope as young people go through the course so that they understand their relationship to things like gender and what the gender expectations are for young women versus young men. And then of course the non-binary LGBTQ community that has their own needs because of you know the confusion in our world about what it's like to be non-binary for example. So anyway, we look at gender and culture and how that affects the issue of sexual safety. And we narrow the, the lens more and more with each class so that by the end, they are talking about their brain functioning. They're talking about their fight, flight or freeze reaction. They're talking about our five safety tools and how they apply to their lives. So um, we're really by the end, helping them understand about you know, their own communication style and boundaries so that when they're done, it's not just about learning how to be more safe in your sexual relationships, but really learning how to be confident in the world. That's what our goal is. Self-knowledge leads to confidence. So how can you understand yourself and work with yourself in a way that you know builds personal authority? That yeah. is awesome. Okay, and where do people pick up these books? So uh, the website has everything. So our website is bestrongbywise.com and the books are on there. The program information's on there. We've got a workshop for parents. Everything is on the website. Perfect. And now where can people follow you? Um, well, there, follow me on Instagram. I think it's bestrong underscore bewise on Instagram. Facebook is bestrongbywise. Um, LinkedIn is be strong. Actually, LinkedIn is Amy Carpenter. So you can find me there. Um, so yeah, so definitely feel free to follow us. And you can find my email on the website as well. It's amy at bestrongbewise.com. Perfect. And we're going to put those links down in the description below so that people can awesome. very easily get a hold of your books, follow you. Uh, you've got such an important message to share and you've got the resources to start to help people make those changes. Wonderful. This has been a real privilege to talk to you today. Thank you Thank so much. Thank you. This was great. Yeah. Have a good one. You too. Again, thank you so much, Amy. That is such a big topic. And I love when guests come on the show and they share about their experiences with it. I mean, I love when all guests come on and share their experiences with it. But I know that this topic in particular can be very hard to talk about. Um, so, hit that like and subscribe button here at the channel. Make sure you never miss an episode. Share these episodes out with your friends because this is an important message. Remember, we do have a merch store where 10% of the proceeds goes back to the Canadian Mental Health Association. And remember, the only way to end the stigma of mental health is to speak openly and honestly. Bye!